weeks uh, for the HR revolution or evolution, no matter what way we look at it, that we're talking about the revolution of HR for the evolution of business. And we're doing more of this learning through conversations. Uh, and today we have Tony, a very special guest and a leader in the people analytics space as data kind of becomes more top of mind for HR professionals as we move forward. Uh, we're talking about the use of data and how to become more data driven. Uh, some, this makes their stomach hurt or their heads hurt. Others, it gets really excited, uh, like myself and Bobby and Tony. I know we really get excited about data and how it connects to business and how it connects to the outputs of business uh, that, that most leaders and businesses desire. So today with me, Bobby Spaziani is the co-host. How's it going, Bobby? Good, Kevin. I can't tell you not, you know, I'm extremely fired up for this conversation here today with Tony. Uh, you know, Kevin, thanks as always for having me on board. Um, for those who, who might just be tuning in for the first time, um, HR Evolution is really a passion project uh, that Kevin and I kind of, um, you know, started maybe a couple years ago at this point. Um, and really the whole idea um, is really to connect HR with business, right? To bring HR to the forefront of conversations that take place at the C-suite. Um, and so, you know, really excited for our guest, Tony Ferreras today. So let's, let's meet our special guest. Let's, we won't keep him on ice much longer. He's uh, obviously got the beautiful view of San Francisco behind him, but uh, how's it going today, Tony? I'm good. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. Um, who could miss out on a promise of fun? So thanks for inviting me. <laughs> well, let's dive right into the fun stuff. I got to ask, what's your favorite song right now? Oh, my favorite song is is an old one. Um, okay. It's Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Um, but I'll have to be honest, that TikTok video, do you remember that TikTok video of that skateboarder going down the street uh, singing to or lip syncing to dreams? I kind of ruined it for a little while, for me, but it, it's back. TikTok has that, uh, has that effect on people, Tony. I get it. Yep. I love some Fleetwood Mac. My mom used to blast that uh, while, while she was cleaning around the house uh, back in the day when I was still, still at home. So uh, that brings back some memories right there, Tony, for me. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tony, so so question for you, right? I mean, you know, when you get a chance to kind of break away, what what sort of things do you like to do for fun to keep yourself busy? I golf. Um, I do projects around the house. Uh, so anything really that requires less of that analytical mind, anything that kind of gives my brain some vacation from that constant data munging is is what I like doing. Uh, before the pandemic, I did a lot of martial arts, uh, so hoping to get back into that very soon. So cool. Very cool. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's amazing that uh, people believe that we have lives outside of work sometimes, uh, despite uh, everything that we just uh, had during the pandemic there. Yeah. I wanted to uh, I wanted to jump right in because uh, you mentioned golf um, and uh, anybody that doesn't know Tony's background, he's uh, got his master's uh, degrees in, in industrial psychology. Um, but also sociology and psychology and his undergraduate. So the guy knows how we're thinking, right? Uh, and I think uh, the game of golf is one of the most designed sports to really challenge an individual's mind and their thought process. Tony, I'm trying to shave a couple strokes off my golf game this summer. Do you have any tips from a, a psychology perspective? Because I know one of your passions is understanding how people make decisions. That's right. <laughs> um, frankly speaking, once you make that, that decision for your next shot, put it out of your mind. 
Love and then that. just swing the club. Love and that. I find that my best rounds are when, you know, I think about it enough to set up my stroke and then just do it without any more thought. You're trusting the process. I love it. <laughs> well, I'm going to try that this summer, whenever the weather changes here in upstate New York for us. I mean, it's May and we're still seeing snow, Tony. So, Oh, no. Crazy, crazy, crazy. I wanted to jump right into uh, then kind of talking about what, what we do, right? Um, I think understanding your history and how you worked your way up, you were working on some projects some pretty cool projects um, and, and dealing with really talent and how they could come into the working world. Um, I, I, I think more specifically about the military. Can you get into any of that research on what you learned? Because I know corporations right now are trying to find new talent pools, you know, that they might have never looked at or evaluated before. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely going back to my, my grad days. Um, it was, you know, I think that that project set up the rest of my decision-making for my career. And I'll, I'll tell you why in a bit, but in particular that one, it was an opportunity that I jumped into because an honorary advisor of mine was um, such a big name in the field of, of psychology. And so I wanted to just say yes to that. And um, it was um, it was a project that was about um, taking a look at like how we see the evolution of our military from before they join the military to after. And one of the main points that I was making in that research was that, you know, we spend so much time re-socializing our folks, our civilians to have that military mindset and be good soldiers, you know, just, you know, effective soldiers. There's so much time, weeks and weeks and weeks that we socialize our, our folks to do that, that once they're done with the military, it's only a matter of hours that, that, that we give them to de-socialize that and become civilians again. Um, and I, and I think that, um, one of the most impactful outcomes of that study was that how do we better set up our veterans for success when coming into back into civilian life? Um, and so, um, you know, one of the benefits from me doing that work is this highly quantitative research type of study. And so it really set up my, my interest towards the quantitative in, in HR, in work and that sort of thing. Um, so how do we set up our veterans to be much more successful in, in the workplace uh, to do that? And so in the end, you know, it was about, you know, providing at least as much de-escalation training as we provide escalation training to become uh, military personnel. Wow. Excellent. Yeah. And, wow. That's, that's fascinating even just to think about is just the, the approach on and it, 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 we do do that. And from a training perspective, and what you almost explained is the same thing that's happening from a talent perspective. We're fighting so hard for talent right now. And then we onboard them and we feed them to the wolves. And it's like, good luck. Right. And then we're surprised when they leave because they had a negative experience and they're gone in six months. So fascinating to see something obviously military on a much grander scale, as far as the, 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 the person before and after that, that, that change. But 
Really fascinating. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, it was a fun study. Yeah. So, so Tony, I kind of want to go back in time a little bit too, because, you know, looking at, you know, your, your career and some of the work you've done in your, in your graduate programs, you know, it looks like you, you really started to look at workforce analytics or people analytics, you know, over 10 years ago. And the, the first thing that came to my mind for whatever reason was thinking about uh, major league baseball front offices, right? When they think about the analytics behind the players and, you know, how, taboo that was when it first entered the front office or first entered the, the field, right? Um, and, and how you had that old school thought process of, um, you know, I, I just want to be able to see the player and see the swing and see the pitch. Um, what were some of those when you kind of first broke into, you know, the people analytics or workforce analytics space, what were some of those, you know, barriers of entry or some of those challenges that, you know, you faced at that point of time? And, and how do they kind of different or how is the the, uh, the function evolved today? Yeah, I think I, we owe a lot to uh, that book, that movie, that history um, with Billy Bean, uh, because when I started, and I especially owe a lot to that, because at that time, um, that's when really we, we started taking a look at, like, how do we make decisions? Um, how do we make better decisions? And how do we use data to... Um, to support that, enable that. And a lot of the challenges that Billy Bean um, faced at the time are, if we were to translate it into this real world of, of work, are exactly the same. You know, baseball at that time, and to some degree now, but uh, I think it's evolved uh, since then, it was this legacy driven, you know, this is how we've always done um, this type of, of work um, uh, or play. This is how baseball's always been. Um, and it works, or we think it works at least. But what Billy Bean did was just turn that on its head and show that, you know, it, it it's not really working. And, um, we can make better decisions if we understand the nuts and bolts of what what leads to runs, what leads to home runs, scoring, um, on base percentage, all, all those things, mm -hmm. and um, all the things that he had to deal deal with in, in translating the importance of why uh, they needed to do that for the uh, the Oakland A's is the same thing that I had to deal with at the beginning. And so it made it easy. And the reason why I am appreciative of that time in history is because that is uh, one of the things that motivated me at the time. And you probably get a lot of folks who started in, in this space around my same time say the same thing, where you know that movie, that book, that history motivated them to really think about like work. They were coming into HR, but they were coming into HR with a different mindset now. Um, and... I just remember those challenges of having to prove myself, having to prove the need for this. And one of the biggest things is how do we create trust in, in this process, in this new thing? How do we introduce it in a way that doesn't feel too threatening also? Which um, I think Billy Bean probably did it in a threatening way, which led to a lot of like the uprising within um, his club. Sure. Um, but that's one of the lessons learned, uh, learned that I had was, you know, how do we do this in a way that builds trust, that meets people where they are, 
um, so that they come along this journey with with me. That's great. I think all the all the similarities there, you know, from that book. I know that um, you know that that particular book and that movie, you know, kind of excited me as it related to you know some of the work that was untapped um, and and not looked at within HR as well. So I'm glad it had that same impact on you too. Yeah, just so I mean, so cool to hear. I think we learn a lot, especially in business, when you draw the comparisons between the world of sports and the world of business. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of similarities that that we can draw. And the one that you shared is like the the good old boys club, Tony. You know, it's like we've always done it this way. This has been the game of baseball for a hundred plus years. We're not changing. And then I loved how you put it. It's not really working. It is working but it's not really working because there is a better way. And I, and the other thing that you had mentioned is understanding more of the nuts and bolts, like peel behind the curtain, keep peeling back the onion, get, get more and more granular. And that's really what I'm seeing most to be the businesses that I'm meeting with and speaking with. That's their hardest part for them right now. How do I take that big apple and how do I take the bite-sized chunks to basically finish that apple, how I want to finish that apple to get that desired result? How are you, I guess, kind of addressing that from an analytics perspective and alignment perspective to the business? How are you getting them to get more comfortable with boiling down the desired inputs to tell you how to get those outputs that they've always wanted? Um, yeah, let me let me try to answer that question. But first, can I mention a side Please. note? Um, the only um, the only similarities that I don't like or the only kind of uh, borrowing from sports that I don't like in business is the whole, are we under par? Are we at par over yeah. par thing? Because they do it in in the opposite yeah. way, right? Yeah. Under yeah. par is good, yeah. but in business, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, that's all right. I love, I love that fact because I usually say, because everybody will say, oh, we're below the national average. Great. Are you average? No, we're better than average. Okay. <laughs> Some yeah. of those things, Tony, I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in terms of peeling back the, the onion, I think there's, there's a couple of things that you were touching on. One is peeling the back the onions around like what's needed to get it, to get it done or to provide you know, the, the evidence or, or the capability of, of HR or the business to be data-driven. And um, the other is peeling back the onions to get at like, how, how can we create a compelling enough story for someone to use it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah. And I'll even, I'll even, I'll give you another example that kind of help formulate. Talk about skills like job descriptions. Sometimes even getting the skills, the necessary or required skills for that particular position is very hard, even for people in the role or people have been managing the role for years. So just understanding what, what data, right? Those KPIs or what data points, even they would even think or consider is really a challenge because then they don't even know what to ask of the data set. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's part of the evolution and the journey that we go on. Um, so if I could just kind of blend with what we were talking about before to get into this, because I think it's very relevant is um, one, it's, it's difficult to, to, uh, to use data or to um, compel people to use the data for their decision-making. Um, it really is a, a journey. 
And so the, the most effective way to, I think, do this is now kind of blending in from what we talked about before is creating that trust that you're you're with them, right? You're, you know, you're in this relationship with them. You're all, we're all going in the same direction. We're trying to improve the business or the organization in whatever outcomes it is that it's striving for. And the initial part that's been successful for me it, when peeling back that, that onion is it, it works for two things. One, um, I need to learn the business. You know, whenever I come into a new organization, especially one that is not quite mature in, in data-driven decision-making or data science, um, I, I still need to learn how the business, business function, what makes it successful, what doesn't make it, make it successful um, about the industry, all those sorts of things. And the best way that I could do that to also kind of hit two cans with, with one stone is, really understanding from the stakeholders perspective what they think we should be looking at. So that both gives me the ability to learn the business. It also gives me the ability to build that trust uh, that I need uh, because I am now delving into the challenges that, the, um, that that stakeholder or that partner is having to deal with. And it, gave, it gives them the confidence that I'm with them. I'm really curious um, about this. Um, and, and I really want to be a partner um, with this. So that first layer in, in getting to that piece is, and, and you're talking about also kind of skills. I know it's, it was an example, but like from a skill perspective in this, it, it is about like the listening skills. It's about the, uh, comp, uh, the, the understanding of you know the other person, the empathetic kind of skills, which, frankly speaking, it can be hard to find in my field. Um, we're we're a very very technical field, so that's one of the things that helps us be successful. But peeling back the that onion reveals like some of the important measures or metrics that we need to capture. So, um, and I'll give you an example of of that. Like if if um, since we're talking about sort of kind of talent acquisition sort of, of things um, um, or what you mentioned before, you know, if this is a high growth organization that we're thinking about, then what's keeping people at night is how do we grow? Mm -hmm. How do we, we can't grow revenue unless we have enough people and unless we're resourced enough to do that. And if we're high growth, crap, like how do we get that done in a time when, People are just leaving all the time. Um, you know what's happening right now uh, with the not so great resignation. Um, people have more choices out there. They can work from anywhere. You know all those sorts of things. And so, for growth, we want to focus on how do we make that that process, the talent acquisition process, more efficient and more effective. Right. So the metrics would the metric story would be around that. Um, and then I think going further than that, once we've created that trust and that kind of walk beside type of relationship with the business and stakeholders, it naturally gravitates toward the good questions that, um, people analytics teams love hearing, which are essentially their questions. They're, Hey, I have this challenge how can I figure this out? 
what are the metrics that I should be paying attention to? Um, and that's when we can start doing more of the peeking around the corner type of, of work, like predictive work. Um, the other is like the prescriptive work is like, okay, we're peeking around the corner. We know that something called the great resignation might happen. How do we stop it? So what are the strings that we can pull? What are the metrics that we should be paying attention to so that we can um, get ahead a of that? So it is a process, it's a growth, it's a maturity, and it really needs to happen alongside uh, the business. And, um, you know, that you're not necessarily asking um, about this right now, but, um, you know, a big mistake that I made at the beginning of my career has been trying to move too fast and trying to show the business that they don't know because I know the, the data, they're not seeing the data, here's the answer. And that just falls flat, especially with, you know, these great leaders who got where they were based on, you know, their experience and their methodology and, and intuition and stuff like that. It just, it falls. Well, they flat. lasted the longest or, or like they just that's lasted the longest. True. That's, 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 where some, that's where some people, and something you touched on there is just the reskilling and upskilling of the talent acquisition side of it, because when it comes to data, I, I, I see the HR trends right now is everybody knows that data-driven decisions are desired by business. Now, businesses have been making data-driven decisions when it comes to marketing, you know, and operations and typically financials. And, that, and that's a majority of organizations are kind of using those as the predictive tools to tell them how to make decisions, right? And, and we talk about in our field, and obviously you being more prolific in the field, know how hazardous that is um, at times. When you talk about kind of the, the how you get people and build that trust and respect, it's more or less getting their buy-in to understand your capabilities and what you can do. Can you start there as to how you kind of develop that relationship? Because I think that those relationships are critical, just as HR is trying to help managers become better leaders or better managers themselves or selecting of their talent that they're adding to their team. How are you, I guess, within those initial phases of relationship building, kind of building the credibility at the same time, as well as the accountability to execute that trust so they're bringing those types of problems to you? Yeah, yeah. Beyond uh, building that initial um, trust is, and what's implied in there is essentially the the wins that you need to make for them. Um, and honestly, you know, it's really easy to win, especially at the beginning of- There's a lot the, of low-hanging fruit. There's yeah. a <laughs> lot of low-hanging fruit. And frankly speaking, you know, and it's not just people analytics, it's also other data science fields that are also kind of, you know, burgeoning or, or growing, maturing in, in other organizations is when it doesn't already exist in the organization, one little thing is a huge win, right? And especially when that little win um, is aligned to the business priority or what your stakeholders are trying to get done. Um, and once you start demonstrating those little uh, wins, they um, are more tolerant of the bigger capabilities and also risk-taking. Because frankly, you know, I think, I think any analytics, but especially people analytics, 
there's a certain amount of creativity and risk that needs to be taken to get to the right decision-making supporting product to sure. provide to you know our stakeholders. Yeah, I like I, that. Excellent. So, so I want to come back to to you know something I think you, you said earlier, Tony. You talked a little bit about kind of walking or working side by side with the business, and you know, kind of peeking around the corner from a predictive standpoint. I, I read in an article that you wrote that you know how important it is to you know for a people analytics function to kind of be involved um, as a programmer as an initiative is being rolled out versus you know, the initiative or program kind of finishing, concluding, and then people analytics sort of coming in and saying, okay, this is what worked, this is what didn't work. Can, can you speak to that at all in terms of like the, the best timing? Why is it important for people analytics or data scientists to get involved um, during a program or during an initiative as it's being rolled out versus at the conclusion? Yeah, that's a great question. And that leads to... Um just the discussion around like, how do we start a, a project? How do we start a program? How do we, how do we even know what to do? Um, and from a legacy perspective or from like a, just kind of like an old world uh, people programs or HR perspective, the, the way that that typically gets done is, you know, there's some best practices that, that exist out there. I think we should try it internally. Yeah. Or, you know, it looks like this is happening, so my gut tells me that we should be doing this to combat it or to, to improve it. Um, you know, and I think probably the, the one article that you're referring to is probably talking about the one myth that I loved busting at that time. Um, and that was around people leave their managers, not their company. Um, when in fact at the time, and I'm not saying that this is true for all companies, but at the time for this particular company that I'm referring to, um, that was incorrect. Um, people were leaving the company, not uh, their managers. And so what's, what's important when starting any sort of project, whether HR, HR related or anything like that, it's important to embed some level of analytics to try to understand what is actually going wrong. Um, what is... Um, what direction should we take with what's going wrong? Here are the options. You know, it, and I'm the first to tell you that analytics doesn't have 100% the correct answer. Um, I, I always say that with analytics, with statistics, there's, there's a certain balance of, of science and there's a certain balance of art to it. But that, um, that, balance, that first portion of, of science gives us direction. Um, to then test the art part of, you know, our work, our hypotheses and those sorts of things. And so if we would have started, for example, in that project that you had mentioned, or, or sorry, uh, in that project that I mentioned about uh, people leaving their companies as opposed to their managers, if we had started with the, um, the data side of it, we would have seen that it would be a bad idea to try to invest so much money in improving management skills when that's actually not the problem at all. Right. No, that's excellent. Right. And, and, and that just goes, goes back to exactly that, you know, working side by side. So you're understanding that you're not busting a budget um, before getting all of the, you know, kind of that balance between the science and art pieces. I, yeah. I appreciate that. And, it, and, 
And from an art perspective, Tony, it sounds like uh, the listening and opening lines of communication is really how you've kind of helped to get additional perspectives towards the data and where to look and and, and maybe where, where else to pry, you know, go a little bit deeper. It seems like you're aligning, obviously, the, so, the social aspect as well as with the data, as well as kind of building that trust with stakeholders and trying to find as many yeah. of those win-win-win scenarios as possible um, as you build your credibility, which I liked. One of the things, too, I wanted to ask you, because obviously you have a base baseline in psychology, is that I found, have you found that most businesses are so forward-looking and forward-thinking, right, or so caught up in the action-reaction of the daily function that they're so uh, uncomfortable with looking back? And the reason I ask that question is I'm finding more businesses try to attack, to your earlier point, the symptoms, and try to address the symptoms that they believe well, they'll trust their gut instinct and intuition instead of data-driven decisions, which is why we're talking to you today. So from, from your perspective though, why do we co constantly go after the symptoms instead of going way back to actually figure out the actual disease? What have you found and what is the most effective way to get businesses to start thinking differently, to dive deeper and to make sure they're focusing on the right things? Well, I think um, an answer to that, there could be many, but an answer to that is that it's easier to believe what you see and believe based on what you've experienced than it is to believe what you're not seeing and what you have not experienced in the past. Um, and I think that goes back to just, you know, part of it is data science, I mean, I remember when data science as a term was being coined, um, you know, it, it wasn't so long uh, ago. And, and so that that field of inserting evidence, it hasn't been around for a long time. And so the, the folks who are making decisions, you know, they've, they've been successful long before that. Yeah. And we got to give credit where credit is due is that they were successful. I mean, they've reached their uh, where they are um, based on on that, you know. Nowadays, it's it's different. Things move much more rapidly. Um, there's much more data out there. There's less guesswork that needs to be done. Um, but going back to your question, it is it is about would you? Is it easier to to believe what you've experienced and what you see, or is it easier to believe what you don't see and what you haven't experienced? So then in your experience, then when we talk about the data skills, right, within HR as we develop, is it data literacy? Is it storytelling? Is it visuals? Or is it the overall translation of the data to what it means to the business as the most important piece? Or is it the relationship that you mentioned earlier? I think it's a it's the relationship and it's the translation of the data are the, the most important thing. There obviously are some caveats to that. Like, for example, I've... Um, I loved um, uh, some past CTOs, um, chief technology officers, because they're often in the data with you. They, you know, if you come to them with insights about like employee engagement, how it's impacting, you know, their population, they want to get into the nitty gritty. At least the the ones that I've experienced, and and certainly that brings the technical side out of me, and I and I enjoy that. But for the most part, it really is about the, the insight and whether they trust you to have 
created the uh, or or to have created the right insight or um, you know um, that it's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that on on top of that, what's what's really what's also important is openness by the the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing when we need to kind of question ourselves, mm-hmm. um, which relates to that openness. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if we don't have that, any type of data science or analytics type of group is going to have trouble um, influencing decisions. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Great point. Great yeah. point. So. So I want to just kind of talk about, you know, just for a minute here, the the people analytics data science, you know, function in general. I think Kevin and I, we we speak with different organizations at a micro level across, you know, Western upstate New York. And and I think what we find is that everybody's kind of at a different stage of their adoption or maturity with with people analytics or workforce analytics. What are you seeing in, in your, you know, in in your world today, what are the most, you know, kind of cutting edge organizations doing um, to, to stay ahead of the game in this area? Um, they're, they're investing in, in, in data, data work, data, um, business intelligence, data science. Um, it's, it's one of those situations where um, you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. And if you don't invest enough, you know, it's really, really difficult to create enough um, insights or any insights at all. Um, and especially the compelling type of, of insights. Um, you know, you, I, I'm a strong believer that the, the journey needs to start foundationally with just like the simple stuff and then build from there. Um, but as you get more, more mature, yeah, those skills tend to be a little bit more expensive. Um, and if, if you truly are a data-driven type of organization, then um, you're likely investing more in that type of enablement or or support from you know from the, the data scientists or the, those types of of roles um, internally. Now that that's not to say that um, the only way to go about it is to insert a lot of money into it. Um, you know, for for smaller companies who are unable to do that, you know, there's. There's something to say for a lot of the data work that's been done externally. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be data-driven by, by having the internal roles. You can be data-driven by looking at it holistically externally as well. Um, and starting with anything internally is, is important. Um, I think not having anything is further behind your competition than just having something. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. So, so you know, again, I think we talked about the difference between, you know, smaller, we'll, we'll use smaller organizations, larger organizations, and larger organizations, you know, we can assume that they that they have a tendency to have more, more financial backing as it relates yeah. to people analytics, data science, smaller organizations may not have that, right? So, how from a small, you know, if you're if you're developing a people analytics function or, um, you know, even just trying to bring data to the table, what are the most effective ways that that you can that you found to be able to take an application from a desktop Power BI Tableau, whatever it might be, and move that from the desktop to you know 
insights within a boardroom or a conference room and getting in uh -huh. front of, of leadership? Yeah, I think uh, the one of the one of the answers to that is to make it personal. And what I mean by that is, um, what is the compelling story behind that that relates to ultimately what your board or your CEO is absolutely interested um, in? And you know, it, that's not so hard to do. I think with with HR data, I think there's a misconception um, because a lot of companies. Uh, focus on like financial type of, of data. Um, but if you connect the right dots together with, you know, the what's most interest, um, what's what, what the board or the CEO is most, most interested in how they run their business, then it's, it's not too hard to do. Um, I think that at that level, the simplest way that you can convey. So now um, answering your, your particular question, the <laughs> simplest way that you can convey that uh, goes a long, long way. A lot of us, I think, in, in my field really want to demonstrate all of the good work that we've put together, right? And that even in some cases goes beyond what we should be conveying to our stakeholders, you know, what model we used, all that stuff. While that's important, um, it's not necessarily needed. And like, you know, presumably, you know, your CEO and your board will trust um, that you're choosing the right things. And if it makes the most sense, if it makes rational sense, then that's really all you need. Um, mm -hmm. So oftentimes what I've seen to be the most compelling is just one number, a percentage compared to something else. There might be a lot behind it. There might've been a regression. There might've been a factorized, all this stuff that, that happened. Mm -hmm. But even for a small company that can convey the simplest number that is compelling enough for a board or a CEO to make a decision uh, or influence decision, um, that's, that's good enough. It does not have to be complex. It's funny. I've noticed, I've noticed that very similarly, Tony. Uh, that's why I typically when I'm first working with any, in any environment, when I'm talking with finance and, and senior leadership and, and HR is... I love to start with that HCROI formula of Jack Fitzends to just start the conversation because mm -hmm. it tells them for every dollar they're investing today, what is what are they getting back? And then the next question is, well, how do we grow that, right? And then that's yeah. really where you start diving. But just connecting that simplistic dot, like you mentioned, starts opening up because you just change their perspective. Wait a minute, I've never, I never thought we could calculate that before. Well, it's just a high level, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned, right, is simplicity. And, and, and when, we, when we're involved in a project, we tend to overshare, just like in sales, right? Salesmen, like the, the number one thing that you don't do is you sit there and talk about your company the whole time. But what do most salespeople do? Sit about there and talk about their company the whole time, how big they are, how great they are, all these other things. And still, until you make it relevant to the individual, why are they going to care? And I love that oh, because yeah. I, think, I think your point is that you get on a relationship level to understand what motivates that particular stakeholder, mm -hmm. not all of them, but when you're having a conversation, can you talk about maybe some of the questions when you're first trying to understand what motivates that individual and what would be a project of interest? Can you walk through some of those questions that you might ask just for any HR professionals that are trying to develop those and establish that credibility internally today? 
Yeah, what you um, were speaking to reminds me of that one scene on The Wolf of Wall Street. Have you seen that movie? Oh, yeah. yeah. Where um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio asks, or I think it was him, maybe it was someone else, but someone asked the other to sell them a pen. Yes. Yep. Right? Yeah. Um, and I have a lot of influences of how I do things um, throughout my life and how I've grown. Um, and that's how I usually get it. It's just like these little tidbits. Um, mm -hmm. And that one really, really stood out to me, especially for, for analytics. You know, one of the misconceptions that we have in analytics, especially in, in, in foundationally maturing type of analytics is that we think that the data is enough to convince people. And that's far from true. Um, we have to start with their side of it, the stakeholders, our, our end users or our audience. Um, we need to understand how to sell them the pen by they selling it to themselves, right? And, and what the way that we do that is through kind of that that stakeholder engagement of asking the right questions to understand like, what is it that's going, that's going to convince them to buy this pen or, or to um, be convinced or influenced to use these analytics to make their, their decisions. And um, so to answer specifically your question, um, it does have to do with um, understanding what is their challenge and what's going to change their mind about their challenge or inform um, their decisions on it? What are those components that are important to them? <clears throat> yeah. and, uh, and, and, you know, um, specifically, you know, asking about like, hey, what's, you know, what's keeping you up at night about this topic? Mm -hmm. um, what's missing in your mind about this topic what's confusing you about you know this or why why are you having a hard time making a decision about this topic are things that make it easy for me to understand okay where are the gaps where are the gaps that this person is looking for that um, i can answer with with data but it doesn't stop there because that that's part of it. The, the selling themselves, the pen piece is the first part. But a lot of times those things that they tell us are not necessarily the, the holistic or full story. Like they might be missing something. And so mm -hmm. it's it's up to me to do just, just enough work to um, give them a full picture, but starting with what is going to influence them to quote unquote buy the pen. Yeah. And you're asking them and, and getting their perspective, but you've also gained the perspective on understanding the yeah. business, right? How it makes money, how it loses money, where they spend it. So you're already going in with some additional information on where to look and what types of questions to ask from a particular person. And I, we talk about that in sales. You talk about that in consulting. I mean, some of the best consultants, we all know that it's got to be their idea. It can't be yours. Yep. It's got to be their idea. Um, yep. So asking those types of questions. And I think just getting better at asking questions is really where we can start to today to really start making a difference and knowing exactly how we in HR and people analytics, we move the needle. But to your point, I know people complain about data. Data is just numbers on a page until you apply insights. And then insights is a one thing, but then how do you drive action, right? And I think that's the emotional connection that you're talking about. It's one thing to have all these great insights, but until you tell it what it means to me and why I should care, 
I'm some people are just unwilling to connect those dots themselves sometimes. So yeah. I love I love that, Tony. I really, really appreciate you sharing that example, because, again, just like sports and just like sales and just like HR, I think right now the sales world has a lot to teach business about themselves because they have learned this they've been a commodity before, right? They already know what that environment is like. So it's awesome to see more businesses starting to tap into the collective intelligence of all human capital within the organization to solve these types of problems. So pretty, pretty powerful stuff. Bobby, I wanted to ask you in closing, we probably got eight more minutes with the man. So I wanted to make sure uh, you got to ask any other questions that you had. Yeah, yeah. Just a final wrap up question for me, Tony, more, more broadly, you know, from an HR perspective, I think, you know, Kevin and I, we, we have listeners at, at all, you know, levels of the HR organization, all different points of their professional career, um, you know, for maybe those that are kind of breaking into HR or, or maybe studying HR or IO, um, where do you think the white space is in the function today? Where can somebody really kind of get in and, and stick their teeth into and, and, you know, really make noise out of the gate? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I certainly have been thinking about that. Um, bias is, is on the, the data side, but if I think more broadly across the, the function itself, um, eventually the, the data insights that we provide lead to quote unquote, what, what is the answer to positively impact the employee experience? Um, and then ultimately positively impact the bottom line for the organization that you, that you work for. Um, and ultimately what, what I see time and time again is when it's effective, when the insights are effective, it leads to an HR product. Um, so it's, a, it's identifying how to productize our work so that it's scalable and repeatable um, so that we can continuously start or continuously um, look at what's next, I think. Um, one of the problems I think that I see over on HR is that we don't productize a lot of um, our, our work. And so it's not scalable and we have to continuously add heads to it um, mm -hmm. or whatever to, to make it um, a reality. But I, I don't think that, that that can, I don't think that's gonna last, right? Um, I think it's, it's something that really needs to change and we need to scale products as opposed to uh, you know, size of, of an organization. Yeah. The, other, the other thing is that we, we have to, in HR, have to start like studying this thing and learning a little bit more around creating more individualized control of our employees' work. Um, and what I mean by that is um, we think of, I, I think the new trend is, or at least for the last couple of years, is to think of like personas in HR so that we create these programs or services based on like groupings of who these people are. Mm -hmm. um, but what I keep seeing in the data is that the most engaged, the, the people who are retained the longest, the happiest people, the most productive people are those who have a little bit more control over what they do, when they do it, where they do it, how they do it, all that stuff. I mean, within reason, obviously. I mean, we can't just 
give people all the time in the world or anything like that. But having that more control of one's work reminds me of, it, it feels like we're kind of going back to the beginning of, of history around work. When we think about like way back um, when we started, um, you know, or not when we started working, but like when, when work was performed or the ways of working was before, it was like not division of labor or anything like that. Like someone actually saw their products from the beginning to the end, the, the build or design to all the way to the end. And then they were proud of what they do and they were able to sell that. And they were, you know, um, much more happy as, as a culture, as a people. Um, and then obviously over time, that's, that's, um, created or, or ways of working become much became much more um, divided like how we create things over time but what I'm seeing now is while not one person is going to create a whole car for example what we can do to get back to a more kind of prideful sense of of how I get things done or what I do is giving them a little bit more control of like their part how do you do it when you do it where you do it all that all that stuff i, I think about that, pride but i think it also dives into the purpose conversation that everybody's talking absolutely. about too tony i mean one of the things that i thought you said is obviously the division of power and, and something that i see in the work that i'm i've been doing lately too is the inability to explain to somebody coming new to the organization of what success looks like within the first six months, what it looks like in the first 12 months, you know, I think the individual wants to understand in the grand scheme of things, how do I move the needle specifically for the organization? Absolutely. And I think the better we get at communicating that, the better the challenge is we have a really tough time of getting granular. We're really good at goal setting. The big things are really easy for us to do, but getting granular and saying, okay, now we got to work backwards. That's where I was kind of touching on that. We're always future, like forward, 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 you know, instead of taking a second back and saying, look, we got to go backwards first in order to go forward. Yeah. Um, and I really think that's kind of the, the, the chicken and the egg. I mean, the cat and mouse, you know, what comes first um, is really what a lot of businesses are trying to understand right now and what, what they're doing without bumpers, if you will, on the bowling alley, is they're just haphazardly now going around talent based off of desperation. And, and I would, wanted to kind of ask you in closing, is on the psychometric side of it, right? Let's talk about the future. Right now, CFOs, if they're thinking about talent at night and that's keeping them up on, on Sundays, that's a first time in a long time. I think we can all say that, right? <laughs> But what, what are you seeing as like the future really of work? Um, where do you think it's headed? Where, where do you, in your estimation, where are we headed in the future of work? Um, because I think that also will tell us why data is going to become more and more important. Well, I think it is more individualized. Um, I think the, the future of work um, is broadening a little bit more on my what I mentioned before is how do we create a little bit more individualized control over what it is that that we do and I, I think we can see that I, in in the trends we can we can see that like I, I don't think COVID created it mm -hmm. uh, or the pandemic created it 
So but it's totally, certainly accelerated. Can I ask you a question right there? And I hate yeah. to interrupt you, but I want to ask you because I think it's important is now we're seeing these trauma-informed, right? So trauma from the pandemic is saying that people like choice, right? They don't like yeah. being told what to do. Yes. So do you think the pandemic has something to do with this desire for individuality or is it more of the naturing or nurturing, excuse me, of Netflix and Amazon and Facebook and Twitter, you know, where, where everything, I'm special because everything on my phone tells me everything I want to know. It tells me everything I want to read. What, in your estimation, do you think, what is more to the, to the cause or they both have something to play with this desire for the individual solopreneur state? It is the nurturing that you mentioned. It absolutely is. Um, but I don't think that it would have been in the state that it is now if it hadn't been accelerated. Um, because when we were thrown into this concept of work from home, almost, well, I think the study was like 60% of us or 50% of us, something like that, where it had to work from, from home. Um, that's when we started discovering after we got a feeling for how to balance work because those things can blend or can blur work and life after we started getting a sense of how to divide that up while working at at home uh. we realized oh wow i can control what i do and i'm happy about it i can control how i do it and i'm happy about it um, got better at saying no because we didn't have to really i think so well we 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 as employees got much more control over where we work to which companies we work because now you know you know this talent is in control of of the talent market not the companies you know okay. so if if you don't allow me you know what i want to do then i could go to over here to this other company <laughs> uh, because they will <laughs> This conversation, I think I could have talked to you uh, for about the next three and a half hours. About Absolutely. Like, yeah. I, 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 obviously, Bobby and I are geeks for this stuff. And just having a professional of your, your caliber and the people analytics world, it's, it's awesome, right? And, and I think you said it best is like fighting that taboo and that mind shift, I think, and, and not being afraid to look behind the curtain, right? And I think that's what you have the, the idea that data is there to make us better. And I think that's why I look at data and why I love more data-driven decisions myself when it comes to people analytics is because I think there's better ways to make decisions. And you said it about Billy Bean. You, they were doing it, but it wasn't the best way, right? Let's flip it on its head and figure out the best way to do it. And I think employers right now are hungry for that. And the first ones to start saying four-day work weeks, I guarantee they got a line out their door. But it takes the analysis necessary to understand, do we get the same outputs? Will we get more? And right now, some of those scientific studies, if you don't have the budget, are starting to suggest that, yes, you can be actually be more productive with less time. And it's, it's something that uh, I think that quagmire most people are trying to go through in their brain. It's like, wait a minute, that's not what I've been told my whole life. It's time. It's time, you know? Uh, so I've really, really enjoyed my conversation and the, my time with you, Tony. I know probably Bobby has as well, but thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of this show and sharing some of the, those great uh, phenomenal insights that you had. Yeah, thank you. Honored to be a part of it.